This week on Punch Mountain, the Tree of Liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, which can mean only one thing. We gotta do something about this bloodthirsty tree. Drop off your Humvee with the valet because we're watching The Rock. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain. This is the podcast where we discover the definitive ranking of action movies as determined by the action gods themselves. Not us. Not the dude talking now. We didn't put the mountain there. We just climbed it. My name is Mac Blake. And I'm joined, as always, by David Hada. I say as always, although this is our first podcast. David, how are you? People don't know what we've been doing in life. We've been at each other's side for years and years and years. Well, I just mean this is like episode one. But you are joined, as always, in anything, in any endeavor in life. That is true. When you got married, who did you get married to? When you got your first job, who did you give your money That's to? Right. I've been there every step of the way. Now, just uh, I know some people like to like uh, get a visual image in their head uh, when they're listening to a podcast. Like, where are these people sitting? Are they staring across from each What kind of table? Uh, David and I are in a pair of oversized uh, three-legged pants. And our, both mm-hmm. of our, like my right leg and his left leg is in that middle leg. So you're correct. We are joined like that. Yeah, and I think by the end of this episode, I will get my other leg into your other leg, and we'll just sort of have overlapping pants. That is sounds good to me. This is the Shark Tank Podcast. We're coming up with the ideas too crazy for TV. David, speaking of too crazy for TV, the movie that we're going to talk about definitely would have been edited because this thing's coming in at a hard R. No, this is a soft R. <laughs> Rain, we're going to talk about The Rock. Soft R, hard running time is what I learned. Oh, my goodness. Uh, This this movie um, overstays its welcome, I would say. Not to give too much away (laughs) a minute four into this podcast, but uh, I got a lot of things to say about the running time of this movie. Yeah, so let's get into it. So what are your initial thoughts, like, just, you know, before we started watching this movie? Because this is our first episode of the podcast. What made you want to do The Rock? Because it was your suggestion, if I remember correctly. You know, we wanted to come out, really, we wanted to come out swinging. And I think... If you're going to do an action podcast, you're going to have to get all the big names out of the way. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Van Damme, stuff like that. But then also like Michael Bay and other action directors, John McTiernan, James Cameron. Sure, I'll throw names around. Uh, so I think this was one that you know was it was going to check off the Michael Bay category. It was also going to check off the Nicolas Cage category, check off the '90s action category, and it was just gonna it was gonna be a really nice opening shot. And I think. Uh, when it's all said and done, this thing's gonna land smack dab in the middle of Punch Mountain. Uh, Matt, what are, what are your opening thoughts going into you know going into this movie? We haven't quite seen it yet. What what are you thinking? I was also excited to do, and I thought it was a good choice because, uh, like you said, it was it's a Michael Bay movie. You know, I also kind of I remembered this movie, you know, being like a action with a capital A, kind of relentless, uh, and it was you know it was a right in that Bruckheimer sweet spot era. Plus, it's a movie that I feel like a lot of people have seen. Yeah, what I did not remember about this movie was how goddamn long it is. Oh my god. It's it's one of the reasons why I was really happy to settle on the action movie genre for this podcast because I was like, man, action movies in and out. Like you're getting your oil changed and you're done. But this one, this one's uh this one's going to test us real quick. My memory of it was that, you know, Nicolas Cage was kind of over the top in it, right? And I sort of I say that as kind of a negative. Watching it now it's like, "Oh, thank God for Nicolas Cage." Because I feel like this movie, you know, it would be a very stodgy without the uh, crazy antics of uh, one Nicholas J. Cage, I think. I don't know. His, his <laughs> the J stands for savings. Um, yeah, that's, 
you know, Nicolas Cage has a has a way of making really good scripts great, and he has a way of making really really okay scripts serviceable. And I don't know, that's that's kind of faint praise. Like he really elevates this. I guess what I'm saying is like this movie could have been really silly. This movie could have been a really 90s kind of movie. But Nicolas Cage delivering the lines and everybody else in this movie delivering their lines lends a credibility to it that it almost doesn't deserve. Yeah. I mean, he at some point pulls a gun on Sean Connery. This is behind the scenes. Um, no, the, in, in the movie. I don't think any other movie would be like, stop, put the gun down. But Nicolas Cage goes like, stop, please, or something. Please yeah. don't. And it just, it, it makes that interesting. If that was, yeah, if it was anybody else in the mid-90s, that script and that role could have crashed and burned. Uh, but he had a way of making me hold on to it as a fond memory for the past 20-some-odd years. So uh, he did something right. Yeah. Speaking of points in time, this movie came out, it was an interesting career point for kind of everybody involved, especially Nicolas Cage, because, I mean, he was not an action hero when this movie came out. He was fresh off of an Oscar win for leaving Las Vegas. He did do the movie Firebirds, David. I don't know if you ever caught that on TNT. That was, yeah, that was his first foray into action, I think, yeah. It was like Top Gun, but with helicopters, I think is how they wanted us to think of it. Uh, Navy SEALs in the air. Yeah. <laughs> it was like him, Sean Young, and I want to say Tommy Lee Jones, but it was it was not good. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe we'll do it one day. Who gives a shit? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're absolutely right. Like, for a guy who had just come off an Oscar win for leaving Las Vegas... He was still at a point in his career where Hollywood didn't really still know what to do with him. Like he's yeah. still, you know, he's still doing character actor roles. He, and his leading man roles are very, you know, offbeat, very kind of wild at heart, honeymoon in Vegas, you know, stuff like that. And so this was this was the first movie where people thought, hey, who's this handsome guy that could open a weekend? You know, and and sure enough, it was it was a really odd fascinating trajectory for him after this okay look i I like nicholas cage a whole lot but i don't know so who's this handsome guy we'll talk about that talk about that later this movie is also it was produced by the uh superstar team of jerry bruckheimer and don simpson however don simpson famously struggled with drug addiction and he and jerry bruckheimer decided to split up their partnership after finishing this movie however don simpson died during the production of it and so bruckheimer had to finish it but david before the mcu Marvel Cinematic Universe was like the king of the summer. It was Jerry Bruckheimer because this dude started like this string of like summertime hits. Con Air, Armageddon, Enemy of the State was another one. Crimson Tide was the one at the early on. Like. Yeah, Crimson Tide. And then um, that was kind of like the the start of this like Bruckheimer's um, feast period. And then it kind of ended because he produced the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. That was like... Disney plus Jerry Bruckheimer. What? That's right. But, you know, very quickly it was sort of like, oh, that's not a Bruckheimer thing. It's a Johnny Depp thing. And then Bruckheimer never really sort of like, I don't know, his name, his like brand kind of went away in a, in a little bit. But it's funny because what, what you think of as like Michael Bay's visual style, it kind of is like the Jerry Bruckheimer visual style. And that in of itself is kind of the Tony Scott visual style. Very much so. Like you, you realize, as I said, Crimson Tide, I was like, oh wait, that was a Tony Scott movie. It's this Michael Bay, not Michael Bay. It's this Jerry Bruckheimer factory. It's going for a certain feel. It's going for a certain style because again, he knows how to make money and he knows what audiences, he knows what audiences like to feel. They might not necessarily like the movie, but they like, they walked out of the movie thinking they liked it. That's all he wants. And that's what he gets every single time. Like there are Jerry Bruckheimer movies I straight up don't like, but I'll still watch them because they are watchable. He knows how to do that. Yeah, speaking of watchable, this movie is directed by Michael Bay. David, are you a fan of his? Um, 
No. No, I, uh, no me neither. He's bad. <laughs> He's bad. But you know what I do like, though, David? I do like having fun. And I got to admit, some of his movies are fucking fun. And even though Michael Bay only thinks women can be wives and daughters, uh, he doesn't really think they could be their own characters. This movie is a prime example of that. It fails the Bechdel test hard. We are not failing the Bechdel test on this show, <laughs> yeah, Mac well, this, Blake. Well, wait, hold on, David. Oh, no, we're two dudes. <laughs> Crap. All right, Dave, before we jump into a retired prison, which is now a hostage situation, let's get into a hostage situation of friendship. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right. I'm uh, I'm very excited to be uh, doing this show. I'm very excited to get it uh, finally off the ground and starting it up. Uh, as you may know, I, <laughs> I don't know if I should even be bringing this up first uh, first time back, uh, but I'm going. I'm fighting some allergies, and I only bring that up because it's the first time I fought allergies in seven years. So like I haven't I haven't been in front of a microphone uh, in seven years since 2015. Since then, I've been living in parts unknown where allergies do not affect me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for some reason, in the past week, uh, allergies have decided to hit where I live. Uh, got hot, then cold, then hot again, and that messed me up. And so now, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I guess is what I'm saying. I was really excited uh, to to be back on the air uh, to do a show with you. And the only thing I'm thinking about is I can I can hear that nasally part of my voice, and it's going to drive me nuts. So uh, so I'm glad to be back on the train to Neurosis Town. How are you, Mac Blake? I'm good. So, David, your voice to me sounds really good, but you're saying it could sound even better? I'm saying it could sound even better, so stay tuned wow. for the next. Uh, I think we are locked into a 100-episode commitment. So we've got 99 more episodes of quality, air quality. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I'm doing good. I'm a little sleep-deprived. Um, I was up late working on stuff last night, and then, you know, a little bit of revenge procrastination. I was I was like, oh, I'll watch a little TV right before I go to bed. And I'm still catching up with um, some streaming stuff. So I'm, I'm watching uh, the Book of Boba Fett or whatever. Okay. I was on the episode that's basically an episode of The Mandalorian because surprise, Mandalorian comes back. And right at the end of the episode, he's like, I'll go on your mission, but first I got to see a little friend of mine. And I was like, oh, he's talking about Baby Yoda. I'll just watch... A little bit of the next episode, because I just wanted to, I just want to see a cute baby. And then, like, I was, like, so tired, but I forced myself to stay awake until Baby Yoda was on screen. And then I was like, there's the baby. <laughs> okay, I can sleep now. Like, I don't know why, like, a hungry drunk who's got to, like, I got to get that McDonald's in me before I go to bed. Like, I just, I needed, my eyes needed to see the Grogu. That Grogu addiction. I know, I'm a, I'm a Grogu head. <laughs> David, this is our first episode of Punch Mountain. Let's explain how this show is going to work a little bit. So what what is Punch Mountain? Okay, Punch Mountain is going to be, like we said at the top of the show, the definitive ranking of every action movie or every action movie that we can get to. Because, you know, we thought someone should do this. Someone should really kind of... Um, Give you a tutorial on where to start and where to end on all things action movie. So we are gonna we're gonna serve as the uh, as the arbiters uh, for this list for this ranking. We don't create the ranking. We're no, just sir. we're reporting it. You know the yeah. gods have have uh, brought this from on high. They're giving us this ranking of action movies. And so every week we're gonna uh, present a new one. Uh, we're gonna submit it for the uh, ranking and uh, and we'll find out where it goes. David, look, I love opinions, right? I love takes the hotter the better, but sometimes I just need some fucking facts. And so that's why this is great because it's, look, it's not my list. It's not David's list. It's no, it's the list. We are just reporting it, right? Yeah. And we're going to do one movie at a time because that we fucking care, right? It's not mm-hmm. going to, 
just give out. And there's no number scores. There's no like, no. oh, well, the Rockets a nine point eight on the, you know, <laughs> smashometer. No. Yeah. What are we pitchfork? We don't care about uh, these decimal points. It's it's great or it's not great, and we'll tell you why over the course of an hour or an hour and a half. And we're hopefully not going to spend any time on not great stuff because this is uh, this is Punch Mountain. It's not Punch Sewer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Subscribe to our Patreon for Punch Sewer though. That's a real body show. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh my god, it gets filthy. <laughs> uh, now we did seed the mountain a little bit. Because we didn't, we wanted to give people an idea of where some of these movies fall. So we purposely watched something that we thought would be high up when maybe the dust settles. We watched The Matrix. Uh, we liked it. And then we also watched a movie we thought might be lower on Punch Mountain. David, what was that movie? Do you remember? That movie was Chappie. That's right. Neil Blomkamp's Chappie. So right now, Punch Mountain is this. The Peak, Matrix, the Base Camp, or whatever you call the... You know, the part where you, you paid a park on the mountain? Uh, <laughs> the visitor center is being yeah. occupied by Chappie right by now. Chappie. So things will be ranked, you know, at the moment. Obviously, the mountain will fill up. We'll we'll learn the other, um, you know, the uh, flags or whatever. I don't know. Points, rankings. Yeah. Uh, but right now, it's Matrix to Chappie. That's, that's the mountain. That's uh, from Abba to Zappa. We're going from Matrix to Chappie. Okay, so I'll tell you what. You know, without further ado, should we just, should we just go into this thing? David, we're going in. All right, Max. So the year is 1996. It's the summer, summer of 1996. What's Max Blake's relationship uh, to The Rock? I did not see this movie in theaters, but I think every other dude on my high school at the time did. Because I remember just like all the other bros in my school. Yeah, I was a bro. No, they were, uh, they wouldn't shut up about The Rock. And so eventually I did see it. And I do remember it being like, oh, this is like a classic slam bang pow action movie. You... Dust off some hyperbolic quotes, Peter Travers, because you are getting on that box. Does that make sense? Anyway, but yeah, I just, uh, I remember thinking this movie uh, was awesome. Same here. Yeah. I um, I saw this one opening night. Um, we're going to find out that between the years 94 and 98 were prime uh, movie watching years for me. I, I caught everything I could as quickly as I could. And this was one of those. And uh, I enjoyed the heck out of it. You know, I was 16 years old. Um I remember I bought the VHS when that came out because I thought this movie was was very clever. I thought it, you know it did a lot of things that I really hadn't seen at the time. Uh, I had only seen four or five movies by then, so uh, no, I remember it. It stuck with me, and I remember you know again going back to why I wanted to do this for this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody latches on to Armageddon, Bad Boys, Transformers for Michael Bay movies, but then I think this one gets overlooked a lot, uh, and it might be his best one. So uh, I wanted to revisit it, and uh, and so we did. Yeah, honestly, that's kind of what I was thinking about it, too, going into it was Bad Boys 2 is probably when that Michael Bay style really, like, reached its boiling point. But this movie, and again, this is just what I my thinking, not having seen it in a while. I remember it being good and fun, and good, by good I mean fun, not good by any other definition. I remember it being fun without being too overtly Michael Bay. You know, like he wasn't quite up his own buns at that point. I will say this. One of the things I liked about this movie was watching it. I could pick all the moments where TNT would have gone to a commercial break. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this was a movie that was on like basic cable, like pretty much every weekend for a while. This is a perfect TNT movie. This is the kind of movie you could have on in a bar with the sound off and everybody's still having a pretty good communal experience with it. I'll tell you what, let's, uh, I'm going to, I'll read you from the back of the box and, and that'll be a jumping off point. How about that? Okay. What box are you um, you reading? What do you got there? What what version of the movie? 
Well, this is a very, uh, this is a special edition Best Buy. Um, it's kind of a, it's a hard case, but if you open it up, it's marshmallows. It's a marshmallow case. Oh my goodness. The fable. Yeah. That's a collector's item. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Cause it's, you know, it's hard like the rock on the outside, but then it's soft like Nicolas Cage on the inside. Uh, doesn't keep the disc very well. It's scratched up all to hell. Yeah. Those, those marshmallows, are they, is that, are those the original mallows or do you restock? Them? I have to restock them. There's <laughs> a little, there's a card where you order new, new marshmallows every year. <laughs> wow. I'm in the whole hundreds of dollars for this one. I'm surprised that, uh, that PO box is still, uh, <laughs> accepting marshmallow requests. All right, what's that back of the box? All right, here we go. Hollywood superstar Sean Connery, The Hunt for Red October, joins Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage, 1995 Best Actor Leaving Las Vegas, in the action-packed thriller of the year, The Rock. All of San Francisco is taken hostage when a vengeful general, Ed Harris Apollo 13, seizes control of Alcatraz Island, threatening to launch missiles with deadly poison gas. With time running out, only a young FBI chemical weapons expert, Cage, and a notorious federal prisoner, Connery, have the skills to penetrate the island fortress and defuse the lethal situation. Edge of your seat suspense and unstoppable action explode off the screen in this must-see motion picture event. 1996, 130 minutes, directed by Michael Bay, rated R. Wow. That's a pretty accurate description. Thank you. Uh, now you why are you? You didn't write it. I read it. Okay. That As does, we've learned from Nicolas Cage, it takes a person to sell dialogue, to sell scripts. That is true. I, I'll admit that um, my back of the box is a little different because uh, I, at first I got the wrong edition. Oh. I got the, uh, the full screen DVD unrated Deuce's butthole cut. Um, and then I was like, oh, this isn't, this has got extra stuff in it. A lot of bloopers edited back Still in. worth a watch. But then I also, uh, then I finally found what I wanted was the Criterion edition of The Rock, which have you checked that out? I, I'm not too familiar with it, no. Oh my God. Amazing essay by Cormac McCarthy in the beginning. Huge, huge The Rock fan. Full length commentary uh, by Benjamin Netanyahu. It's just, it's fucking crazy. It's, uh, yeah, check it out though. Interactive menus? No, very, you know what? Very like uh, understated menus on the Criterion. Oh, disc. very nice. Isolated 6.2 score. Yeah, it's in there. <laughs> I don't even know if the numbers mean anything. Uh, isolated uh, 8.17 score. Uh, yeah, David. Oh, so it blew up the speakers. Okay, that's great. <laughs> yeah, you had to have a subwoofer bass, woof bass, <laughs> double woof, triple woof trap. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Okay. How does this movie start? Besides that beautiful Hollywood Pictures uh, Sphinx logo. I, that was like, well, seeing an old friend. I had, I, is, is Hollywood Pictures still around? I probably should have looked this up prior to the show. I don't think so. I mean, even back then it was like, it's Disney without saying Disney kind of thing. Yeah, right? it, it, it opened January 1990 and closed December 99. It was just the most 90s uh, movie studio. So we see Hollywood Pictures uh, and we get a little... Um, it's kind of a cross between like a, a, a break-in at a, at, a, at a weapons facility and a, a really unnecessary scene at a cemetery uh, because that's going to tell uh, all of the backstory for the villain of the movie instead of actually storytelling. Yeah, and the villain of the movie, played by Ed Harris, and his, his character's name is General, I already forgot it, Hamler, Humler? Humble. Hummel. Hummel. There you go. Yeah. Oh, like the figurines. I'm surprised that wasn't a line in the movie. I would, For all the throwaway, all the sort of 90s kitschy lines in this movie, you're telling me nobody could compare him to a Hummel figurine? I wouldn't be surprised if Ed Harris was like, all right, I'll do this movie, but nobody if I want here one fucking collectible figurine joke. <laughs> so David, something we're going to track 
uh, throughout this um, podcast is, is a bunch of moms. By that, I mean mark out moments, David, is what we're going to call okay. them. Okay. Yes. And that's moments where we get so excited about what we're watching that we kind of mark out, right? Like if you're watching something and you get you like so into it, you start chanting the name of the movie, like The Rock, The Rock. Uh, that's a mark out moment. And I got my first mark out moment real early on because the title of this movie, you know, it comes at you, it like uh, zooms in, I it's, guess. It's coming toward you. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. A black image with the letters for the rock cut out. But inside of them, David, it's not just white negative space, it's fire. What? <laughs> and so you get the title of this movie, like the rock, and then fire. And I was like, hell yeah. I got excited <laughs> about that. So we see Ed Harris. And there's like some voiceover about some sad military stuff. Oh no. And he's like putting on his dress uniform. This is like after the fact, right? Like whatever tragedy it's taken its toll on this guy. And we see him putting on his dress uniform and he takes off his wedding ring. And I was like, oh, is this guy Tom Catton? Is that what The Rock is about? <laughs> is this some guy being like, I'm putting on, I'm going to go steal some valor and some hearts, yeah, right? I got to get my rocks off is what he thought the movie was. Yeah, but no, he was just sad about some soldiers that died. Oh boy, thanks. Uh, yeah, so then, uh, so then he's like apologizing to we um, we surmise it's his wife uh, who died, and he's like, "I'm about to do some things you wouldn't have liked to see uh, when you were alive, but the second you died, click click, here I go." Uh, and so he goes to break into a weapons plant, and oh, yeah, uh, Steve, he says, oh, "Yeah, I, I couldn't do this when you were alive." Because if he's tried to commit treason when she was alive, she would definitely have been like, nah. Yeah. I don't need you nagging on top of everything I'm trying to do today. It's the, 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 the Lockhorns prequel to this movie of him just hating his wife. Look, women, David, they take forever in the bathroom and they hate treason. Ugh. They don't die soon enough. I could have had this done four years ago. But she's dead, which leaves him. Uh, clear to start a little bit of a uh, light treasony that gets in the heavy. How does he start it? Uh, just a little scotch of domestic terrorism by stealing uh, 16 missiles. Oh, make it 15 missiles um, with uh, with some deadly gas. Uh, or it's this deadly liquid. It's a gel. It's stored in these little glass vials that are only good for movie making purposes and not actual bomb purposes. I'll tell you what, right out of the gate, they, they do a really good job of establishing that maybe these guys aren't evil in the sense that they're using trank darts, they're using beanbags. Okay, that's what I wanted to ask you, because his little squadron of loyal Marines, it's got some of your favorite character actors in it. Uh, John C. McGinley, Raymond Cruz is in there, Bokeem Woodbine, uh, always a bridesmaid, David Morse. Just uh, a bunch of people, you're like, oh, that dude, right? But yeah, they're Marines, and they're attacking a Navy base, and I swear they shoot the first guy. But then later on, I was like, I look, that looked like a stun weapon. So... They didn't kill any of these dudes. You don't think you think it was all just like non-lethal? No, in fact, like this is the first I've seen this movie probably about a half dozen times. And this is the first time I actually saw the beanbag to the gut. Okay. And I was like, oh, wow. What was I okay with? But then the other five times that I saw this movie. And so it, it was, a, it made a lot of sense to me now. Big theme here though, by the way, Marines and uh, Navy dudes, no love lost. No, they do not like each other, which is uh, good to know when you're being protected by both. Yeah. Because later on. <laughs> After they definitely kill some Navy guys, some dude was like, civilians, I don't know if I could kill them. Navy SEALs, though, that was cool. Like, he's <laughs> totally all right with it. This scene does have a little bit of Michael Bay feel. There are some, like, definitely needless, like, you know, stylized action stuff, but it doesn't really feel 
too much like Michael Bay, um, or doesn't have like the too much of the Bayham or whatever, which is probably good. It, it it has just the right amount because I'll tell you what, like this first five minutes, it, it establishes a lot pretty quickly. It establishes the villain's motivations. Uh, it establishes the stakes. Like when we see one of those little glass uh, glass vials break and and someone gets infected with it and dies pretty much immediately, like we know, okay, this is pretty severe. So he does a really good job of cramming this all in very quickly, and he does that throughout the length of the movie. But why is the length of the movie so long if he's so good at narrative economy? Yeah, well, that's the thing. One of the things that establishes is that uh, five-minute scenes will take 10 minutes, which is what (laughs) this scene does. But you get a sense that these soldiers of his are like real badass, right? And then uh, beep, 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 some text on screen. Because David, superimposed text cannot appear unless you hear the sound of like it being typed on a computer, I guess. That's right. You do need to see like the ticker coming along and reading it beep, off. Beep, 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 beep. Uh, and it tells us that we're in Washington, D.C. And that is so we can meet Mr. Stanley Goodspeed, of course, played by Nicolas Cage. And where do we meet this dude? Uh, he's at his job. You normally would think he's working at Fuck Around Junction. Uh, by the way, all of it, he and his buddies are just kind of playing around, setting stuff on fire. But no, he's a, a chemical weapons expert. And he's in D.C. Um, defusing bombs and whatnot. Yeah, the first thing we see from him is he built like a Rube Goldberg device, which kind of tells us nothing about his character. It's like that doesn't really come into play later. A bird that won't stop drinking doesn't knock over a bunch of dominoes, which saves the day. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really come back into play. He does, he gets a piece of mail delivered to him, which is a, a Beatles LP mm-hmm. and it's $600. David, uh, why? Why did that cost? There's there Those are not rare. David, I don't know if you know this, but the Beatles sold a lot of records. Yeah, yeah I'm wondering about that too. Like, I have a lot of problems with the uh, the inclusion of the Beatles record. Uh, I'll, I'll bring it up here in a little bit, but uh, right out of the gate, $600, that's, they're really hoping nobody has bought a record in, in at least 10 years. And they're like, oh, maybe we can lie to people and tell them there's a collectibles market. And I'm like, it's, it's just irresponsible is really what it is. Yeah. Maybe if it was like um, signed by that. Uh, Charles Manson. Maybe it was signed by like Pete Best or something like that. I don't know uh, if that would have been worth it. Also, real quick, let's talk about this. Let's talk about Nicolas Cage's hair in this movie because it's it's fucking amazing. You know, Nicolas Cage, he's got some pretty questionable hairlines in other movies, which is like, well, that's obviously a wig. This movie, his hair is receding and they've really done nothing to kind of tamp it down. And so you kind of get these like wispy, and I I know about this, David, because my hair is also uh, going in reverse. But the you get these like wispy strands of hair, kind of just like floating all around his head. This entire movie, with those in the biz, might call some flyaways. This thing has taken off. Like it just it it's a, it's a like there's another shot later where you see him in silhouette, and you still see that like little like I don't know what you even call that that. This long like comb over that just kind of combs down, I guess. It's like it's not quite a moat. It's yeah. sort of a reverse moat, I guess. The '90s had some really questionable hair choices for men, and I think this is just sort of that like we're coming out of the the Caesar look, and he's you know he's also just going bald. But it's also this sort of wild like uh, I feel like Chandler from Friends would have worn like a wild hair like yeah. this. But I'm, I'm gonna say this. I love it. He just owns it. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's not trying to like get rid of it or hide it. I mean. In this day and age with all like the Marvel workouts or, you know, like they'll digitally whiten people's teeth or whatever, like Nicolas Cage rocking his actual hairline at the time uh, is great. There's movies with Sylvester Stallone where they might put him on an Apple box so he doesn't <laughs> seem as tall. If you look around the lab where when you first meet Nicolas Cage, everyone in that lab is more balding than he is. 
This is true. <laughs> like, I mean, it's pretty. There's one guy with a lot of hair, but then you turn around and he's got a huge bald spot on the back. It really was like, it's like they saw him and like, this is how bald he's going to be. Oh, boy. Hold on. Let's go cast some more baldies. He looks like uh, Samson compared to uh, these other people. Do you think that was in the contract? Do you think that was in the negotiations where like Nicolas Cage comes on set and he's like, what's all this? Who, uh, why do these people have so much hair? And it's like, all right, well, we'll take care of that for you. Absolutely not. I don't think so. I think that's more of a Michael Bay thing because we'll talk about it later. But he definitely has some. Um, I, I yeah, I feel like that's kind of like an executive thing. Like, what he's going to be this bald? Oh no, he's got to be the most virile person in the room. Yeah, exactly. So they diffuse a, a bomb, a chemical weapon in there, and we also meet uh, Chekhov's not his gun, his heart stab and syringe, uh, because they almost get murdered by um, sarin gas. And the only way to survive this gas attack is by sticking a syringe of, I don't know, something good in your chest straight into your heart. And so they're like, this is crazy. I don't want to do it. And hopefully that won't come up later in the movie, but it does. But yeah, he survives because uh, he defuses the bomb just in time because Nicolas Cage is good at his job. He's good speed at his job because that's his character's name. Look at that. I would like to take a moment uh, before we move away from this. I would like to absolve his co-worker um i forget the name of the character todd luiso is the name of the actor mm -hmm. but you know it's set up to sort of you know he's playing with the doll and he triggers the uh the gas and the bomb whatever yeah. it very easily could have been hidden in the porno magazines that nicholas cage is handling like it's really just by the grace of god that uh, nicholas cage isn't the fuck up in the scene yeah so it was a male bomb and it was full of porno magazines and a baby doll and the baby doll triggered the gas i don't know what the point of porn mags was other than like somebody must have thought it was funny you know what i mean uh oh baby doll in a porno who's that going to hit us up on punchmountain at gmail.com <laughs> he saves a day and then he goes home where we meet uh his girlfriend carla played by vanessa marcel right and she's got some news she's pregnant uh, yeah uh, after nicholas cage like you know he's relaxing he had a hard day at work he's telling her uh without letting her interrupt the world is going to hell, and whoever is having kids in this day and age uh, is really doing a really dumb thing. And he's saying this in 96. Uh, we're, we're 20 some odd years removed from that, and uh, uh, nothing has changed. <laughs> and then she proposes. He's like, we're not even married. And she's like, will you marry me? And he's like, uh, I don't know. One more thing I, I brought up earlier about the Beatles record, and I'll bring it up uh, now. So he, he buys the $600 Beatles record, bring, you know, brings it home from work, and he comes home. And in the background, he's listening to a completely different song. It's World Without Love by Peter and Gordon, which was written by Paul McCartney. But it, it, it raises the question, okay? If you're trying to convey something with this $600 Beatles record, couldn't you convey that with anything else that you could get the song rights to? You know what I mean? Like, you could lie to me and tell me there's a $600 Ramones record if you can get the rights to Blitzkrieg Bob. If you can't get any Beatles songs, don't use a Beatles record. That's my soapbox. Yeah, because he uh, he buys it and then he goes, these sound better. But then I guess he goes home and he's like, oh, I'll listen to it later. Okay, while they're having that convo, we cut to Alcatraz and we see General Francis Hummel. That's Ed Harris's character again. And his crew of dudes take over Alcatraz. They uh, pose as uh, people on a tour and they let some tour people go, some tourists go home. They keep the others as hostages and they quickly set up shop uh, in Alcatraz or excuse me, set up base. At some point, they're looking at a map He's pointing to the shower room of this prison and a character goes, a possible penetration point in the shower room, which God, they must've thought that was like the funniest thing on the planet. They must've just, whoever wrote that must've just been like high-fiving his bros and crushing some Michelob Ultra. 
Uh, so when they take it over, some other troops come in on helicopter, and now he's got, a, including Tony Todd, the Candyman himself. It's time for one of uh, General Hummel's uh, fantastic speeches. Yeah, this is where we learn like why he's doing all of this, really. You know, and, and we find out uh, he's decided to hold uh, the city of San Francisco hostage for the tune of one hundred million dollars, so that he could pay off um, a bunch of soldiers who who died in other wars or other missions or whatever uh, top secret missions. They were never given a burial. They were never even recognized. That sort of thing. And then maybe there's like a little, you know, a little taste for daddy on top of that. Maybe a little almost $10 million never hurt anybody. Uh, so it's about money when you get down to it. Thank you, Ed Harris. Yeah. Now, regarding this speech, do you think right wingers would like this dude? On one hand, it is trying to solve a problem with weapons, which is the worst way uh, to do anything. What his problem is, is that uh, these American soldiers who died on covert illegal operations were not given you know, respectful burials, like you just said. If they got in trouble, they were not allowed to send in backup. They were kind of screwed over. He could have gone on Oprah or whatever, you know, and, and talked about the Oprah. <laughs> he could have gone to uh, a network, a news network, and told the story. He could have wrote a book or whatever. But he was like, no, I'll just uh, take over Alcatraz. Oh, he's definitely uh, a dumb traitor. But on the other hand, like, if this guy did this thing, would Tucker Carlson be like... Uh, and what's wrong with a little violent action? You know what I That's mean? That's what's so hard to look at it, look at this movie through the prism of 2022, because you're absolutely right. Like, right-wingers would have absolutely gravitated towards towards Ed Harris, towards Hummel, uh, towards his speech, towards every little aspect of, the, of this thing. But back in 1996... That was very obviously a red flag where, you know, that's you're thinking post Timothy McVeigh, post Unabomber. You know, we're, we're getting to the point where if somebody tells you the Tree of Liberty speech, that's shorthand. They're cuckoo. We don't we don't need to know anything else about them. We can go ahead and proceed with the rest of the movie knowing they're a little off kilter. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think people uh, gravitated toward this in 96 and they were immediately put on a watch list. And then if somebody were to gravitate towards this in 2022, uh, they would get a show. Exactly. Okay, so word gets to the government, I think, because they the bad guys tell them. And so then we get a, um, a war room scene with a lot of even more character actors assembled in it. And they get a phone call from General Hummel where he, 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 he lays out what he wants, which is the money. And then there's this other dude, there's a White House Chief of uh, Staff, Sinclair, that everyone takes turns uh, dunking this on. This poor guy. Yeah, he, I, I, there's two opportunities where, like, you know, Hummel's, uh, you know, overcomes, and he's like, "We, I'm doing this for all the people who who died in, in China and died over here. And this poor chief of staff, Sinclair, is like, oh, we never told anybody we've been to China. And I was like, who are you? How old are you? You were, a, you know, sperm when I was doing this stuff or whatever. And, like, that's not his fault. Like, it's not his fault that he doesn't know that the about these top secret missions. So there was that. And then when they're talking about the possible um, death toll, you know, if, if this gas gets loose and, and, you know, disperses over the city and he's like, uh, well, how, how many people could it kill? And one of the guys in the room goes uh, 60 or 70 and chief of staff Sinclair's like, Oh, it's not so bad. Thousand, <laughs> 60 or 70,000. You fucking idiot. You monster. And it's like, no buddy, I was settled on 60 or 70. You paused a really long time. And I thought I was ready to go. Yeah. When they're talking about general Hummel, he's like, this guy's got a, uh, you know, six purple hearts, a silver star, five, uh, you know, uh, other great medals. And, uh, he's like, this guy's a hero. And then some, the army 
<laughs> Joint Chief goes, hero, try legend. Like he's just like, this guy cannot win. You know, it's funny in your notes, you wrote dunk on. I also, the same verbiage, this dude loves dunking on him. But here's the other thing is these people, everyone in this movie, they just is riding Hummel's dick. Like every time this dude is brought up, people fall over themselves to be like, oh, General Hummel. Uh, yeah, he's committed uh, pretty gross crimes, but uh, this dude, he's such a good dude. At some point, uh, yeah, the chief of staff is like, well, I guess he can add uh, taking a hostage and uh, domestic terrorism to his list of accolades. Another guy goes, hey, he's an honorable man, which is like, why are we, what did this dude there's do? A, there's a weird there's a weird novelty there, um, like with that, and and you'll see it throughout the movie, like even as the plan deteriorates, the Marines still are, you know, the the troops or whatever still operate under the chain of command. And it's like, at a certain point, this all feels silly, where you're, you're dealing with a domestic terrorist at this point. He's got hostages. He's got missiles pointed at a city. You can dispense, you know, you can, you can, you can lose the pleasantries and lose the, uh, the accolades at a certain point, I think. So he tells everybody in the room, including character actor John Spencer, who plays FBI director Womack. Now, John Spencer, I cannot tell you what other movies he's been in. And I'm not talking about Blues Explosion, John Spencer. You took my joke. But, I'll cross that one out. <laughs> but seriously, you see this dude, and you're like, oh, that dude. He's a classic that dude face. He says, like, look, if you alert the media, I'll launch the gas missiles into San Francisco. If you try to do a countermeasure, I'll launch the uh, gas missiles into San Francisco. What he does not say is, if you try to evacuate the city, I'll launch. He does not say that. And then he gives them 40 hours to respond. Look, you low-key could have fucking cleared out that city in 40 hours, especially because they don't have any troops on the ground. You know, they don't have any, like, spies or anyone feeding them info from San Francisco. Social media is not around yet. I I don't want to, like, you know, break our ankles here falling over uh, plot holes, but it's kind of a big one. Let's let's not nitpick this movie that'll, like, dissolve in the sun. And at some point they're like, who's your best chemical weapons, dude? Cut to... Good speed. Nicholas Cage, he's the best. But what is he doing right now? He's fucking. Which is a, a weird moment because, like, you know, he's he's having sex out on the roof, I think. I hope he owns that building. Um, and then he get the you know gets a call and he's like, oh, that's work. And and his girlfriend's like, hey, you know, you don't have to answer it. They don't know you're home. He's like, it's the FBI. They know I'm home. And it it it's kind of driving me nuts. Again, looking at things through the through the light of 2022. How cavalier we were about stuff like that, where it's like, hey, guys, we should really look into our feelings about uh, <laughs> our relationship with the FBI. So he's like, oh, I, I got to go. Uh, it's like it's a training mission, probably, but you can come with me. And she's like, look, we didn't even finish our conversation from earlier. You know, I don't even know whether you're not going to you're going to marry me. It's like, what? So she proposed they did not resolve that. And now they're fucking like, if you were like, will you marry me? And I was like, I don't know. Can we talk about it later after we bone? Like, I don't think you're getting a yes to that, but apparently you are. It, it feels like they're very rigid about like, okay, we had a fight time for the makeup sex and then we'll finish the conversation. Yeah. But he does say, look, I will marry you. And she gets happy and she's like, let's just finish fucking real quick. And he's like, there's no time, which I mean, uh, props to Nicholas Cage. He's a, he's a slow nut. Uh, I, you know, I, I, he's not, because I feel like if he wanted to, he could, we could get there real quick. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, no, he's, he's, he's making a meal out of it. Yep. So we cut back to the war room 
and they got a SEAL Team One, I believe. The leader of it is there, and it's it's a uh, TV's Michael Bane. And by TV, I mean <laughs> sci-fi movies. Michael Bane, led by yeah, exactly. Like this poor bastard, because you know, again, I've seen this movie a half dozen times, and I knew Michael Bean was in this movie. But I think this was the first time I clocked like his first appearance in the movie. I think I was like, oh, this is where we see him for the first time. Now it makes sense why he's in this movie. Like he's never – you think of the movies he was in. You think of like the star – the star turn we tried with him and it never took. And I, it, it made me feel a little bad about him. Yeah, in case you don't uh, know who it is off the top of your head, he's uh, Reese from uh, Terminator 1 and Hicks from Aliens. And he's a very likable but very dry person. The perfect person to kill. Uh, so the audience feels bad about it. Which, spoiler alert, that does happen a little bit later. So as SEAL Team 1's getting their plan together, they realize, hey, we're, we might need somebody on the inside. We might need somebody who knows a little bit more about Alcatraz. And that's where we start to talk about uh, John Mason. Uh, we don't see him yet, uh, but we're talking about this this uh, secret prisoner that we've been keeping you know, under wraps for years and years and years. And uh, we're also, at this point, we're also talking about the slush fund. All the money from illegal arms sales is going into the slush fund, and that's going to use to pay off to pay off Ed Harris and crew. It, it, it's starting to occur to me that maybe uh, Hummel's not the bad guy in this movie. I think we're sort of being misdirected into thinking that somebody else is. Yeah, Womack is your classic weasel character who, you know, he's like a good guy, I guess. But he's going to screw you over somehow because that's what weasels do. The conversation uh, about, uh, I almost said Munson. It's, it's Manson? No, Mason. Fuck. Sean Connery's character, Mason. The conversation about like, hey, you should bring that Mason dude. He escaped from Alcatraz. It's between John Spencer and Philip Baker Hall, who just like two, like, I was like, honestly, these dudes could probably talk about anything. And this scene would be great because they're just like, like growling at each other. Philip Baker Hall in this, so John Spencer, his character Womack, is the uh, executive director of the FBI. Philip Baker Hall is the chief justice? Wait, hold on. So the chief justice of the Supreme Court? Is there another chief justice? I, I, I can't think of anything, and I'm wondering what on earth does he think he's going to do in 40 hours? Yeah, what also was he, exactly, like, when, the, uh, when they went after Osama bin Laden, did they bring in uh, John Roberts? Like, I don't think they did. That might just be one of those happenstance things where, like, the chief justice was hanging out with John Spencer. He's like, oh, I guess I just happened to be in the room. So as they talk about John Mason, we start cutting to seeing scenes of him in prison. It's Sean Connery with a, a bad wig on. And we get some real Michael Bay goodness here. Because to get him out of his cell, I guess whoever's holding, like, uh, keys on a chain, they sort of let go of their hand and the key drops you know, the, the slack in the chain, you know, whatever. And so you see like a very dramatic, like boom, just like a key dropping or being lowered. And I was like, whoa, a dramatic key lowering. We're deep in the Bayhem now. That's going to get him out of the cell. <laughs> yeah. It's like a needless, like, uh, Hey, can you put this uh, credit card back in your wallet? And like close zoom in on the slow mo of the credit <laughs> card going in. <laughs> and then, uh, we fly over to, Oh, I guess we all, we've, everyone's arrived in San Francisco, right? Because we meet uh, local FBI muckety-muck Ernest Paxson, played by William Forsythe. And Womack meets Godspeed for the first time. Good Goodspeed, speed, my bad. Uh, before, before we get into that, I did have a question while watching the movie. Or rather, a question from, uh, from my girlfriend, The Bombshell. So everybody pulls up to this, you know, the meeting place. Uh, you know, cars pulling up, that sort of thing. And at one point, car pulls up and some pigeons fly away. Do you think the pigeons were wrangled there, or do you think that was just happenstance as well? Hmm. 
Good question. Thank you. I'm going to say they're probably wrangled. I mean, with the the Michael Bay attention to detail, I think he's like, I want some pigeons. Like, just as how he probably was like, I need some more bald dudes or their apartment doesn't have enough wacky shit. Like, I think he just, he wants to fill that I frame. Get that. You know well, good I mean? for him. I, it, it was effective. I liked it. So we go into, uh, I guess we're interrogating uh, John Mason now. We've got him in this, you know, uh, the windowed room, you know, the the one-way glass or whatever. Uh, they're trying to get him to to play ball. You know, they offer him, um, you know, a pardon, you know, to sign this and, and we'll, we'll get you out of here uh, in exchange for your help uh, with, with something we won't quite tell you everything about. You're just going to have to say yes and trust us on this. And they can't, yeah, they, play, they can't get him oh, to say ahead. yes. Sorry. So they're just like, we're out of ideas. Let's go to good speed. Yeah, they do a little uh, mean cop, weird energy cop. You know, Nicholas Cage plays weird energy cop and Mason's like, all right, I'll, I'll do it. And he agrees to uh, help him out. Or whatever. And he's like, I'll do it if uh, you give me a suite at the Fairmont Hotel. And like, all right, let's give him a suite. And so uh, they're driving over to the Fairmont Hotel. And Nicolas Cage has, has told him, he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm a field agent. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, you're a field agent? He's like, oh, yep. And then uh, Sean Connery like barks at him. He's like, Rrr! and it scares him. And all the other dudes in the car, federal agents start laughing. Which is another theme of this movie is the uh, toxic masculinity of everyone in this movie, there's just bullies, so many bullies. And I think this kind of gets it to why I didn't like Sean Connery as much as I wanted to. The script wants us to think he's this like aristocratic gentleman, right? You know, like he he quotes Oscar Wilde, you know, uh, at some point he talks about being a spy and he's like, I would have rather been a poet. And then, or, or a farmer, I guess he says that too. Uh, not that farmers can't be aristocratic, but whatever. A gentleman farmer, except... All he does in this movie is act like a tough asshole the entire time. Like he's not, they really, if they wanted to go that way, I think that would have been a lot more interesting to have him be sort of like cavalier or a little bit more of a swashbuckler. Although there is, as soon as they get to the Fairmont, he wants a haircut and they bring in uh, Anthony Clark, who I was a Boston Common fan, so I was excited to see back in the day. But it's, it's okay, here's the thing about the Anthony Clark. He's obviously playing like a gay hairstylist. And nothing that he says is all that funny. Like he's not, you know, he's he's definitely reading as effeminate, but it it's not played for laughs. But watching this in 1996, you know, it was there for laughs. Yeah the the mere presence of this hairdresser and almost I I, I almost overthought it for a second, and I was like, oh, maybe people are laughing at a straight person playing gay. Maybe that's all it takes in 1996. Um, but it really kind of getting back to your point, like one of the, one of the knocks on Michael Bay or, you know, one of the, you know, the negative aspects of Michael Bay, Michael Bay's style is everything is alpha. If you're not alpha, yeah. you're weak, you know, uh, either you're effeminate or, you know, you're, you're incompetent or, you know, you're just this sort of nervous energy and uh, secondary character, uh, unless you're an alpha. And that's the only way you're going to get airtime in this movie. Yeah. Like he, uh, he looks, uh, Anthony Clark, the hairstylist looks at, um, Sean Connery's hair and he's like, Oh, do you, does he have time for a, like a kelp treatment or a protein pack or something? I forget what he says. And they're like, no, just cut his hair. And it's like, oh, was the was the audience in 1996 like just rolling in the aisles at that one? Like, oh, look at this dude. He's trying to like get fancy with the dude's hair. <laughs> that, hey, you better not do that to my hair. Or something like that. <laughs> Does he know who he's doing that to? Hit him in the face, Sean Connery. Yeah. And question, do you lose points on punch? Do you get a lower ranking on punch mound because you're homophobic? Oh, 
Absolutely you do. So that, that's several punch points down, uh, Michael Bay. Clean it up, you creep. Will um, you get below Chappie? You're not that big at it. <laughs> not that bad. So Chappie <laughs> had its own problems there. Um, but then he, the whole thing about going to the Fairmont, getting his hair cut, it was just a ruse, right? He manages to escape. Part of how he's able to escape is he calls up uh, room service and he's like, you know, bring up all the food. And the people guarding him are like, well, look at this, all this food. I guess I don't got to watch my prisoner. I'll just stuff my face with this lobster. And it works. While they're distracted by a buffet, uh, he escapes. Uh, there's some really fun stuff from Nicolas Cage where uh, Sean Connery is holding Womack, the man who imprisoned him back in the day, uh, over the ledge of the hotel. And Goodspeed is like, don't, please don't, put him down, or whatever. And it's just kind of, it's just such an oddball delivery from Nicolas Cage that it's uh, great. It's, you know, it's one of those things, uh, and, and you even make mention of it, like, at this point in the movie, Nicolas Cage is kind of, it's kind of keeping the movie afloat. Like, mm-hmm. he's just, he's having fun with it, and if he's having fun, we're having fun. And, and one of the decisions he made going into the production of the movie is he wanted to make Goodspeed a goody-goody. He didn't. Didn't want him to curse at all. He wanted him to be like kind of an oh shucks, you know, gee whiz, that kind of guy. And I think it's a little touch like that, especially in a Michael Bay movie. That's like, okay, this is interesting. I'm going. I'm going to keep following this guy, no matter how preposterous the movie is getting. Yeah, and it works. Like later on in the movie, not to give something away, it's like a dramatic scene where he, instead of saying like, uh, oh, he goes, instead of saying, cut me some fucking slack, he very loudly goes, cut me some friggin' slack. And something about yelling friggin' really loud, it just, it's just more enjoyable than fucking, you know? It's like, it's just a little bit unexpected, and Nicolas Cage is, is you know, Captain Unexpected. So I we're... have, along those lines, when, uh, and again, getting ahead of ourselves, when um, when Goodspeed goes to pick up Mason after seeing his daughter, hmm. uh, and he's like, let's get something straight, a-hole. And I just, I, the delivery of a-hole, uh, it's probably one of my favorite parts in the whole movie, honestly. <laughs> So Goodspeed is running out of the Fairmont Hotel. Oh, excuse me, Mason is. And Mason, when he escapes, he's like running through the kitchen and he knocks over a couple waiters on an escalator. And then he runs through the kitchen and he knocks over like a big thing of dishes and a chef gets mad at him. And then Goodspeed, chasing after him, also like runs into those same waiters and also knocks some shit over in the kitchen. And I was like, God, that looks fun, right? Crashing through like a crowded, busy kitchen in a hotel, that should that should be a game show or at least a video game. You know how there's that weird show on MTV called like Quiet Library or Silent Library or something like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Seriously, like uh, crowded kitchen race. Like I feel like that uh, industrial kitchen dash. That should be a show. I feel like I feel like the movie The Game kind of touched on that, where it's like uh, it's action movie fantasy camp, and like there's there's a market for that. I think it's yeah. just going to cost millions of dollars. I think it's great. Well, then we have a car chase through San Francisco. At some point, Mason drives his stolen Humvee over a Volkswagen bug with a big psychedelic paint job and a big old peace sign. It's a love bug. So if you wanted um, some subtle uh, vibe or if you want a subtle look at what uh, Michael Bay's vibe is all about, it's a Humvee driving over a love bug is the... uh is the uh, the aesthetic, I guess. I'm glad a, a director completely devoid of vision or meaning uh, decided to shoehorn that into a car chase real quick. Honestly, this car chase, I mean, I don't know what people thought in 1996, but I was getting pretty bored by it, David. And right when I almost completely lost interest in it, jumping out in front of a car is a ridiculous old lady. Like Mama from Mama's family, but like <laughs> even more of a cartoon. Old lady, like giant hat, just really bad, fluffy, you know, gray wig and like a, a walker. And there's like, oh, I got to dodge him. 
And then he right dude crosses his path at that point. It's a bunch of like wheelchair athletes. He's like, oh no. And then he crosses into the parking lot or excuse me, the sidewalk. And then duk, 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 he's hitting a bunch of parking meters. I'm like, now this is a car chase. Somehow a, uh, a trolley at San Francisco trolley gets blown up into the air, but then lands. And then a trolley operator who again was just blown up into the air and his trolley is now overturned. He crawls out of his overturned trolley and he goes, this sucks. <laughs> Which <laughs> Such an odd, like, yeah, no, it, it definitely sucks. I, it sure admit, does, Chan. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely laughed out loud at that part. So, uh, I started to get bored, but, and then after that, that cart or the car chase ends with a trademark Michael Bay spinning camera shot. But instead of like in bad boys two or whatever, when he's like, or maybe it was bad boys one where he's like, shit just got real or whatever. I think it was bad boys too. Yeah. In this one, like there's no point to the spinning shot. Like there's, it's not like a hero moment or Nicholas Cage like decides to do anything. It's just kind of a there to be there. And just uh, it's like, you know, spinning shot wasted. It was like the Spike Lee dolly shot, but just used on like picking up a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. This, this whole thing, this whole sequence felt like much ado about nothing where, you know, on paper, a car chase through San Francisco, which, you know, you've been to San Francisco. It's some very interesting driving terrain that could be exciting on paper. But like when you get a director like Michael Bay, who's all about tight shots, quick edits, that sort of thing, you don't really get a sense of what is exciting about a San Francisco car chase. Like you very easily, this, this car chase could have just been, Hey, I'm going 40 miles an hour over a hill, but I can't see the other side. That's all, you know, driving through San Francisco in itself is scary. So to kind of make it the, you know, this Humvee and there was, there was a really interesting part or, you know, a really interesting aspect where because he's in a Humvee, he can knock stuff over to serve as a distraction for the cars behind him. So, you know, he's plowing into uh, parking meters, he's plowing into telephone poles or whatever. And that's neat. But at the, you know, at the end of the day, for, for what I, I just really did not care. Yeah. And he, he's doing this all not to uh, escape, but to, um, See his daughter, who he's never met before, who lives in San Francisco. Jade Angelou is her name, and played by a '90s actress Claire Forlani. I mean, I'm sure she was in other stuff. She was in Meet Joe Black, and then I don't. Maybe she moved. I don't know. Mall rats. I, I know mall rats, but you know what I mean. Like, well, you didn't say mall rats. Oh, sorry, that's true. So Mason meets his daughter, and they have, I guess, a moment. Uh, we're spending so much fucking time trying to build up the backstory of these three characters. Just get to it already. And that's kind of what happens. The SEAL team is planning their mission, and it turns out both Goodspeed and Mason, you guys are on the team. You know, they're loading up here. They're getting ready to go. And the SEAL team, like, right before they go, give, like, yet another speech where they're getting, like, like look, we're going up against General Hummel. Uh, this dude rules. Like, they got to, again, just, like, falling over themselves to talk about what a great guy this is. The SEAL team, like, looks at Mason and like, hey, you fuck us. I'm going to bury you. And then Mason's like, uh, I do the bullying here. And so he turns to good speed <laughs> and he bullies him a little bit because the military is nothing but bullies is what this movie wants you to believe. The SEALs arrive at Alcatraz. You get some underwater stuff there and they go through, where do they arrive in, in uh, good old Alcatraz? Uh, they end up in the boiler room, I suppose, that is still operational for this prison that is closed. Do they happen to explain that at any point, or do, are we just all on board for it? I guess we're all on board. It doesn't okay. like, I mean, I, I guess they, when the invading army was like, all right, we're in Alcatraz, set up base camp. Let's get the boiler room going again. Uh, get the cafeteria fridge back online. 
you know, let's uh, start up the men's choir, I guess. I don't know. It, it really is like once they get to Alcatraz, it's the start of like action movie set piece fantasy camp. Because yeah. the first thing you get to, you know, when they when they get on Alcatraz is they've got to get through the boiler room. So, you know, um, when Sean Connery was, you know, when Mason was here, uh, he had to roll through, you know, f- flames and and gears and they were turning and that sort of thing. And so he's got to do that this time around uh, to get inside. And everybody's like, hey, man, he's 70. You know, how is he going to be able to do this? And he does it with very little to no problem at all, which is all fine and good. It's not. He's doing it backwards this time. You know, <laughs> the first time he did it, he did it to escape. Now he's going back in. I'll give this movie a wide berth. I'll, I'll let it set up a lot of stuff, uh, preposterous or no. But I was a, a right out of the gate. We're going into Alcatraz and I had a real hard time buying that. They get there and Michael Bain is, or Bean? Bain or Bean? It's, it's uh, Mr. Bean. Bean. Oh, I didn't. Okay. Uh, Mikey B says like, oh, great. There's no way out of this room. You fucked us, Mason. And he's like, don't worry. I'm going to get through this Tomb Raider style trap. And he does. And that sets up like, oh, this dude does know Alcatraz. He is an Alka head. He comes back in the room through a door that he's opened. Real cocky. He, he Then he says the line like, oh, let me give him a little Sean Connery voice. Now, here. as you're getting ready, do you have a reset? Do you have a Sean Connery reset? I, I don't. Sean Connery. I'm trying to find it. I am the last. Okay. You're the man now, dog. All right. So then Sean Connery opens the door. Then he gives his classic line. He walks in and he goes, welcome to the rock, which what a gift to mid to late nineties, uh, radio stations, whoever's editing the promos for those things. So like, you're listening to one one X, uh, Austin's home of the six pack Saturday night. Welcome to the rock. Like, you know, it's just such a, thank you, Sean Connery. You've really jazzed up. This classic rock station's audio drops. And then after a really, again, another scene that's way too long, these soldiers come in and they are ambushed. The, excuse me, Navy SEAL Team 1. I'm just, I'm calling them Team 1 because they're not very good. SEAL 6, that was, I think that's the money That's going to be my favorite, I think, of all the SEAL teams. Uh, SEAL Team 1 gets ambushed by the uh, bad guy Marines. And then we have uh, the set piece. We have an ambush in the shower room, right? And there's a lot of setup. These soldiers who, by the way, is are uh, supposedly like the best in the biz, they lose their shit so quickly. <laughs> the bad guys are like, I got a bad feeling about this. And as soon as the guns point at the good guys, one of the good guys is like, oh, we're going to die. They start arguing and then bap, 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 gunfire. All the heroes die. Yeah, right? there's a, a lot of chatter and everybody, pretty much everybody on SEAL Team 1 uh, gets killed. Uh, nobody on the Marines, I don't think. Uh, I think they end up undefeated on this one. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just good speed and Mason now. They have guns pointed right at them. Like once bullets started flying, uh, it should have taken like 30 seconds and everyone on SEAL Team 1 should be dead. But instead it takes way too long. SEAL Team 1, zero kills. They like straight shut out. Again, not a great SEAL Team. It bothers me a little bit. You know, I wish, I wish SEAL Team 1 had lived long enough to see movies from the 2000s. So they could learn, hey, we should get captured, and then our plan goes into place. Like, why did? Why was it just, oh, we're in the shower, they've got guns on us, end game, and they were yep. done. We got to die, guys, sorry. <laughs> so they die. Uh, the only two people left are Mason and Goodspeed, Connery and Cage. Uh, Mason's like, well, I'm out of here. Sean Connery's talking, or excuse me, Nicholas Cage is talking on the phone with uh, William Forsyth, and he's like, you got to get, you got to get Connery to stay. Goodspeed's like, he's got a gun. And then uh, a line that made me laugh, William Forsyth goes, what do you have, a fucking water pistol? And uh, I was like, oh, pretty good line read. Pretty good line read. (laughs) 
Goodspeed convinces Mason, uh, hey, stick around, you know, and Mason's like, I don't need to. I, you know, I've been done wrong so many times. And so then we cut back to John Spencer explaining to William Forsyth uh, who John Mason is. And I, and I think as the viewer, we're getting introduced to Mason for like the third time now because we've already had like the preamble. This is a bad dude. Then we've already had the other one. Hey, man, this guy's, you know, a scary guy. And now we're getting into, hey, what did he actually do to get imprisoned without uh, without bail? Again, we d- I was already on board with him escaping Alcatraz, but apparently he stole, like, who's that asshole's name? Uh, Hoover. Hoover? Yeah. Edgar, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover. Well, I'm sure Herbert Hoover sucked, too. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover's, like, uh, secret, his, his black dossier or whatever, his secret files. He's like, yeah, here's the worst thing we've ever done, though. We kept this dude in jail without a trial or a lawyer forever, which, again... They're like, oh, we can't let that getting out. We we gotta kill this dude. We that's a, which is so funny because after of course nine eleven, the United States was not shy about doing that. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, we do that all the time. If the government found out we did this, our name would be mud. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're like, you bet your ass, we we hate giving people trials. Get to give my bitch. (laughs) Uh, Which by the way is is not good. Please do not mistake my flippancy for approval. Unless you want our line of Gitmo bitch shirts. Oh no, David, we're (laughs) we're gonna take those to Sturgis. You know, Goodspeed's still in the process of trying to convince Mason to stick around. Uh, they're talking really loud, uh, and so the Marines overhear this and they're like, "Oh, they're you know, there's still there's still a couple guys alive. Let's bomb them out." Uh, in the process of bombing them out, they knock out their comms. So now Goodspeed and Mason are on their own. Uh, it's just two of them. They can't talk to William Forsythe or anybody else. So Sean Connery's trying to trying to pep up uh, Stanley Goodspeed, and he's like, uh, "You know, okay, you know, let's, let's go fight him." And Goodspeed's like, I'll do my best. And, of course, Sean Connery, another great line from this movie. He's like, you're best. Losers always whine about their best. Winners get to go home and fuck the prom queen. Again, like, I feel like the things we remember most about this movie are throwaway lines like that and none of the movie itself. Yeah, it's like uh, Sean Connery could predict uh, shitty dude's Instagram accounts. That, uh, <laughs> he's like, they need they need to put some quotes and some really obvious fonts over pictures of cars. Big dogs, you got to bark. Yeah, there you go. Then at some point, they find a rocket, right? One of the things they were there to get. Um, Nicholas Cage is removing the guidance chip from the rocket, so that means they can't fire it. So even though those chemical weapons are there, the, uh, the bad guys are not going to be able to fire them into the city of San Francisco. But when they arrive in that room, they walk in and they see an enemy soldier who's just like, he's just chilling there. He doesn't have his gun. And he's like, oh, shit. And he reaches for his gun. Sean Connery quickly throws a knife into the dude's neck. I watched that scene. I like rewound it like four times. I swear there was a gunshot sound. It might have been just like badoom, like a badoom from the soundtrack. But I thought the whole point of throwing a knife was like stealth because Sean Connery has a gun. He just is like, I don't want this guy alerting anyone. So he throws a knife. And David, this is my second markout moment because it was, it just felt more like a Sam Raimi movie because the guy's like face like, oh, and like the knife went right at him yeah. and right into his neck. And then as soon as this guy like, oh, like violently dies, knife to the neck, Sean Connery goes, never hesitate. Like he just, <laughs> he's so calm. He just like whips his dudes. It's almost like that thing, like where Steph Curry would like shoot up a three pointer and like turn around before it like went in. He's like, yep, I knew it was going. <laughs> Sean Connery like throws a knife. He's like, boom. So he never hesitate. That's my, I just went right for his neck. And I, I, I laughed at that. And then I, this actually probably was my favorite set piece, by the way, in, in the movie. I think so. Uh, I think you're right. Cause you know, the, the knife death is, is pretty awesome. Um, 
there's a there's a kill where Sean Connery shoots an air conditioner uh, from above the, uh, from above the sky and it falls on the guy. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah. That was my third mark out moment. Oh it's shit! When air, it's when the air conditioner. So they're in the, they're This is the morgue. That's where they're fighting. And uh, this dude is like shooting at a bad guy shooting at, at Connery and Cage. Sean Connery. He does a classic thing where he like they're hiding behind a table. He looks below the table and shoots the guy in the shoes. And there's a close-up on the shoes, or excuse me, his boots, as they take a bullet wound. I mean, attention to detail here. <laughs> the bullet goes in the shoe, excuse me, the boot, and then immediately starts smoking. Like, smoke comes. I love a good smoky shoe, yeah. David. Smoke starts coming out of the shoe, I guess, because of the heat of the round or whatever. <laughs> and then he falls down, and then he says something like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to throw a grenade at you here in a second. And then Sean Connery shoots the air conditioner. Again, another Sam Raimi-style kill, like a close-up of the air conditioner falling on him. And then a great post-kill line here from... Uh, it's not technically a post-kill because Nicolas Cage didn't kill him. But he stands up, he looks at the guy, and the air conditioner goes, well, that's just about the most awful thing I've ever seen, which <laughs> pretty funny. And at that moment, I did wonder, like, is that the point of the Nicolas Cage character? Like, is he supposed to be like, Imagine if you if someone was actually in a in an action movie, how would like a real person react? Instead of um being on board with like an action hero saying things like, This sucks, this is crazy, this is the most awful thing I've ever seen, which if that's the point, I don't know if they did it, but it's sort of interesting. I th- I think he is supposed to be a bit of a a bit of a nebbish in that way. And I think by it being Nicolas Cage and by him not playing it too much in that way, like we very easily could have had like thick glasses and a cowlick uh, version mm-hmm. of Nicolas Cage. Uh, but I think he plays it. I think his monotone delivery really works for the character. Yeah. And I think this is where he says, come me some friggin' slack, which is great. And then the bad guys are like, Hey, the morgue team's not checking in on their comms, which you didn't hear that gunfire. Okay. And so the bad guys catch up to them in the morgue. And then we have another set piece here where they fall through the morgue. And David, in your notes, you put laundry carts, which Thank you for putting that because honestly, for the longest time, I I didn't really think twice about it because they look like the mining carts, you know, from like uh, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. So I just was like, oh yeah, there was uh, some sort of rock mine, some sort of mineral mine underneath Alcatraz. And I didn't think twice about it, David. No. I never thought, <laughs> why are these fucking like weird, uh, like, you know, gondolas or whatever, uh, metal gondola baskets. I don't know what you call them. Suspended metal carts. It's a. Uh, it's one of those things where, like, in the moment, in 1996, when you're watching this movie, you're just like, "That's Michael Bay for you. He'll put you anywhere." But now watching, it's like, "What the fuck are we doing here?" This is, and it goes on for so long because first, it's a, it's a chase. It's like I'll get in one cart and you get in the other cart, like we're goddamn goonies or something, and we'll go for a little bit, uh, traveling at speeds of a mile an hour. And then it'll stop for a little bit and it'll turn into a shootout and we'll still be stuck in these carts and we'll still be stuck in this place we don't know on this island where other stuff is happening. But it just it felt like egregiously out of place. Like um, when Kevin Smith talks about doing the spec stuff for uh, for Superman Returns or whatever and talking with John Peters and John Peters is like, I want a giant spider at the end and like I don't know how to get there. It kind of felt like that. It's like you just wanted the cart chase, and we ended. We rode around it. David, let me ask you this about that: the mine shootout, or whatever we want to call it, laundry cart shootout. Is that this movie's signature action piece? If not, what is what is it? I mean, we haven't finished the movie yet, but like, if you saw this opening weekend on Friday, 
and you're hanging out the water cooler, your 90s business, probably a Tamagotchi factory. <laughs> what are you and your Tamagotchi bros like, oh, I saw The Rock this weekend. That one scene where that was cool. What is the one scene? Is it this? What is the movie think that one the scene The scene that makes me drop my Fertopia is going to be, honestly, for me, the, the, the set piece that sticks out the most is going to be the diffusing of the bomb within the first 15 minutes of the movie where we where we're introduced to good speed and he has that moment where he's cool under pressure that sort of thing like and i know that's not that should not be the right answer that should not be the answer if it's coming that early but i'm gonna have to go with that i think it's it might be this one which to me yeah i didn't really the signature action uh set piece it might be that final sequence which is not necessarily like it's very tense, has a lot of action, does not have a lot of fighting in it, but that is okay. Okay, so we in it, we get out of the, the laundry cart. So Raymond Cruz dies, R.I.P. Tuco Salamanca. Sad to see him go, he's a good actor. At this point, Hummel decides he's done fucking around. He gets on the public address system and he's like, I'm going to kill a uh, one of my hostages, just some... <laughs> and of course, is he nice to this hostage? No, because he's, he's an alpha, this hostage is a beta, so he bullies him a little bit. He's like, you better bring back the guidance chips. You know, elsewhere in the prison, you can tell Nicholas Cage is like, oh, he's going to execute a hostage. Should we give in? Sean Connery's like, no, man. He smashes the guidance chips. He's like, let's go to it. You find that last rocket. I'll distract Hummel. And he's like, well, what about that dude he's going to execute? Sean Connery gives him a thumbs up. And Nicholas Cage goes, <laughs> okay. He like gives him a thumbs up back. Like, what the fuck did that mean? Another great Cage moment in the movie. So Hummel's got uh, the executee in the prison yard. And out comes Mason. Mason's like, all right, you got me. I'm the only one here. I'm the last one uh, who survived. Uh, so he turns himself over thinking that, you know, the fight is over. Meanwhile, how, Mac, if you're, the, if you're the guy about to get executed, it's the day started off, you're visiting Alcatraz. It's a, it's a fun day out. It ends with you on your knees with a gun to your head. And it's like, come out, you hero who has decimated my entire team or I'm going to shoot this guy. And a 70-year-old man walks out. How are you feeling about yourself that day? <laughs> I, you know what? I'm going to say that guy's my fitspo. I want to, I'm like, look, this dude's 70 and he's got a, you know, he's in great shape. There's still time for me. Yeah. Look out, Orange Theory. You got a new sign up, a new signee. Me. It's me. A new sign up person. Obviously he, he calls it sign up person. He doesn't know what a gym membership is. He doesn't even have that terminology. <laughs> so Mason, Mason turns himself in. Uh, Goodspeed, meanwhile, is getting the rest of the uh, the guidance chips, getting the rest of the missiles. Now, right here, the music, kind of what it's been doing throughout the movie, which is, you know, most of the time it's like, da dum da dum some good action, da-dums, or whatever. But occasionally, the music will have these kind of like heroic kind of flares to it that I just feel like are not working. And at this point, I'm like, man, who did the music for this? Stunned to see Hans Zimmer. The patron saint of action movie music, Hans Zimmer. Yeah, Hans Zimmer and Nick Glennie-Smith. And it's this kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know what? As Bay was still figuring it out, I feel like Zimmer was still kind of figuring out at this. Because this, I feel like the score of this movie is like half good. It feels like a paint-by-numbers that Zimmer kind of did his own touch on. Where like Bay kind of gives him, all right, let's go patriotic, let's go marches, hymns, that sort of thing. And then Zimmer kind of throws a little bit in there. Like, cause I remember, you know, when they're doing the, the break in at the very beginning, I was really into that Zimmer score. But <laughs> then as the movie goes on, it just kind of ends up being like, you know, Johnny comes marching home. Uh, and you sort of lose, you know, why did you hire Hans Zimmer in the first place? Yeah. So Nicolas Cage, eh, good speed, he gets captured. And of course, we just saw Mason give himself in. So now our heroes are prisoners, right? And the soldiers could not be more bored. 
you know, before they were like, sir, yes, sir, I'm on it or whatever. Now, like, they're just basically, you know, trying on sunglasses or whatever, being like, sir, 37 hours till detonation, blah, blah, blah. Just, just totally just like fucking around or whatever. Yeah, still still stick with that chain of command, though. Like, the, the plan is deteriorating. The, the group is in shambles, but they still got to be that sir, yes, sir. I, I do love their enthusiasm on that one. So we see Nicolas Cage making some noise in a uh, prison cell. Above him is uh, uh, Mason in another prison cell. And he's like, oh, well, you were, uh, you escaped from, uh, from prison. You know, you, you swam the channel, you crawled through the Tomb Raider style boiler room trap, but how in the name of Zeus's butthole did you get out of the cells? Just an amazing line. I watched this on Amazon prime, David, you know, they have those little like fun facts that pop up and it was like, fun fact, these people, including Quentin Tarantino apparently did punch up on it. And then later on it was like, and these two people rewrote some of Sean Connery's dialogue. So I think, honestly, we might have actually wrote on this movie too, David, because so many screenwriters. But whoever wrote Zeus's Butthole, such a weird, weird line. Because the other line, I mean, like, that sounds like Anchorman, right? Uh When when, when Ron Burgundy was like, great Odin's Raven. But this was not played for laughs. This was like a serial character in a serious quote-unquote movie. Who in the name of Lady Liberty's ovaries told you that you could do that? Yeah. And uh, Mac, are you knocking this? David, I love (laughs) it. There was I, again. Nicholas Cage is so winning um, when he's in the prison cell, um, sort of just chewing on the line of dialogue that the guy from the practice gave him before he captured him. Where he's like, oh, you know, oh, thank God you got saved because I would take real, you know, I'd, I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. And so then you see like several hours later, and it's just Cage just ruminating over that line. And I was like, yep, I've been there. I've been in those fights where you just like that son of a bitch is gonna stay with me forever, isn't he? So we cut to them. Uh, what are they doing? They're walking outside, like towards the water, because Mason is like, I'm out again. It's like the third time he's like, nope, I don't want to do it. Which at this point, it's just like, what, what are we doing? Because uh, spoiler alert, he changes his mind real yeah, quick. Yeah, he realizes he's 70 and he's fucked and uh, he can't get off that island like he used to. So yeah, he decides, yeah, fine. I guess it is worth it for that daughter that we met in the second act. Fine. I'll come back and save everybody. The U.S. government's contingency plan, which is uh, loading airplanes with a different kind of explosive. It's not ready yet. And so they don't give in to the general's demands. His uh, mercenary team, uh, who are now basically just like, yeah, kill, 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 kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, launch the missile, launch the missile. He's like, fine, I'll launch a missile. But in the last second, he's like, I don't want to kill all of San Francisco, who completely could have been evacuated by now. He like, boop, 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 presses some buttons, and the missile lands harmlessly in the ocean. Because, David, I mean, I don't know a lot about oceans or whatever, but I'm pretty sure it's okay to dump uh, the world's most lethal poison gas into the water. I think it's probably I don't think we'll see any repercussions at all. I think in the rock uh, deleted scene on the um, Criterion DVD, there's a news report the next day where it's like, 8,000 whales are clogging our beaches. Dead whales. (laughs) Anyway, so now the soldier's like, dude, why did you do that? Why did you not? Aw, boo, you, do you really want to kill these people? And Ed Harris Harris is like, no, I don't. And then, oh, next thing you know, we got a uh, Mexican standoff, David. Yeah, as as moviegoers, by the way, it's really the thing you want to see where your two heroes, Goodspeed and Mason, just sort of sit it out. While the bad guys uh, off themselves and solve everything for them. I, I, I thought that was a really nice touch. Cut back to the government and they're like, I guess we got to fucking launch these missiles. And we get a needless scene with the president who we've not seen at this point giving like a just a, a what the fuck speech. This is the hardest decision I've ever had to make. How do you 
How do you weigh one life? Because on one hand, I have the entire population of one of America's largest city. Or on the other hand, I have General Hummel. Oh my God, how could I possibly do anything to harm him? He's so great. Again, who is this fucking dude? <laughs> He's like little Sebastian from Parks and Rec. He's just like... <laughs> no one wants to like, okay, he he's killed some people, but he's pretty cool. He's just, America's they, lovable scamp. Yeah, they love him, but they're like, all right, go ahead. The the jets are ready now. Uh, launch the strike on Alcatraz, kill everyone, including our heroes. And so now we get some tension here because, you know, our heroes are like finding some bad guys. Ed Harris has now been shot. They're like, where's the location of the final missile that still works? And he's like, it's in the lighthouse, lower level. Sean uh, Sean Cage, uh, Nicholas Connery. Ooh, um, they're they're <laughs> they they merge bodies real quick. It was pretty crazy. That's face off. What if my f- yeah, that's face off. Nicholas Cage, good speed, runs to the lower level where he has to fight uh, Tony Todd, Candyman. Oh wait, does he fight? He him does there? fight him there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, and, oh, and he kills fights him, him for yeah, because that was okay. That's gonna be. The closest I come in this movie to a markout moment is when, because it's a pretty, it's a good looking shot too, where mm-hmm. uh, where Goodspeed realizes he's got um, he's got Candyman pinned up against a window, but also he's got a he you know unbeknownst to Candyman he's got a missile pointed at him. Yeah, because Candyman's got a gun. He's like, and uh, Nicholas Cage is like, hey, if you shoot me, you'll shoot these green glowing poison balls, and we both die. And so Candyman's like, fine, I don't need to shoot you. I'll use a knife. There's a really dumb scene where he's like, um, he's like, do you know how this works or whatever? Or do you know how this shit works? And the candy man has a knife and he goes, you know how this shit works? It's like, just, <laughs> it's kind of like, you're, it's like, hey, stupid. And then somebody going, you're stupid. Like it was that level of comeback. Real embarrassing. It, it really was. It was, yeah. yeah. The script is is starting to kind of uh, show its wear by this point. I, I think this is the part of the movie where I was like, okay, we can, we could wrap this up already. Real quick. I forgot something. Shout out to Ed Harris's death scene because whoever decided to give him super red 70s blood, I love it. That's a really good point. That was, yeah, well good. Well done. Like seriously, like some Sherman Williams, <laughs> just red as red could be, paint blood coming out of him. Beautiful. Candyman and Nicolas Cage are facing off against each other. And Nicolas Cage has walked behind a rocket and he kind of eyeballs in like, oh, I see the rocket controls. Yeah, and so like he starts monologuing a little bit and he's like, hey, you know that song Rocket Man? And Candyman's like, I don't like that easy listening shit. Uh, pretty good Candyman, I think. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, Goodspeed's like well that's funny because you are you are the rocket man and then he shoots the rocket and launches him out which again is cool if you don't have those lines kind of muddying the whole thing up uh, so I was I was deprived of that enjoyment there I was also deprived of that because I feel like that uh, it's because it's you you're the rocket man that was such an awkward fucking line I didn't even enjoy the fact the candy man was rocketed off a cliff into the air, and then when he falls off the rocket, he gets impaled on a pole. That should have been a mark-out moment, death scene. But I just didn't, I because that line was so awkward, I was like, still groaning about it. I didn't enjoy it. And then when he dies, Nicolas Cage is like, oh, I guess that shit worked, or whatever. And I was like, I'm still mad about the previous line. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's it's a really cool death for a guy who's like six on the call sheet, as far as like this uh, this Marine team goes. And it just, it really felt unearned and kind of tacked on. And then Connery meets up with this other dude who's like not a name actor, but we've seen him throughout the movie. Tough bad guy goes, he's like, hey, what's up? Hey, I tell you my uh, old man was Irish, you British prick. And, you know, of course, Connery beats him. And honestly, huge missed opportunity. 
because the bad guy's like, you know, my old man was Irish. And then Sean Connery beats the bad guy. And right there after he kills him, he doesn't say anything. Real missed opportunity for a nice message of Irish-British unity, right? He could have been like, he killed it, you know, he, he, he snaps his neck or stabs him in the throat, whatever he did. And then he could have been like, oh, you're going to unite with your dad in the kingdom of heaven, just like the United Kingdom welcomes the Irish people, you know, something like that. Just a a real, you know, a flag-waving moment that could have happened. Just into a lot of violence. A beautiful message of peace befitting the rock. Yeah. I mean, just maybe a little U2 there or something, Sunday Bloody Sunday. <laughs> Maybe Bono makes a cameo in the background as a tourist. Just a huge missed opportunity right For there. Sure. I feel like the audience wanted it. So Nicolas Cage is now, he's there's another bad guy played by, we haven't talked to him about, but he's got a terrible haircut. There's like one of the little like bomb bomb modules is like floated away. Or not floated away, it fell. And Nicolas Cage grabbed it right before it fell uh, onto a lower level and shattered. And then this bad guy is trying to kill him. You know, Nicolas Cage has this terrible poison ball in his hand. And... We get a shot of the bad guy, like from Nicolas Cage's point of view, as the bad guy is strangling him. And the bad guy's mouth, he's almost like making like a circle with his mouth, like, rawr, rawr, rawr. like imagine the face you somebody had made before they're about to eat a big chili dog. <laughs> and then and the bad guy's like, I hope you choke on it, mouth, choke. And of course, what does Nicolas Cage do? He shoves the poison ball in the guy's mouth. They went to such great pains to like visually tell you this is what needs to happen. Why? So the audience can be like, solve it first. Like, oh, shove it in his mouth. Like they <laughs> shouting at the screen, put it in <laughs> yeah. his mouth. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Mouth, mouth, Hurry. Stupid. Like, yeah, we get, there's a runtime on this movie. We got it. And he shoves in the guy's mouth and the breaks. And so now the bad guy is being uh, poisoned to death, right? The poison is in the air. So Nicolas Cage has got to get out that giant anti-poison antidote syringe we saw early in the movie and stab it into his own heart, which he does. I think that's maybe supposed to be the water cooler moment. Then he grabs his green flares, which they say, hey, if you pop some green flares and we see the green smoke, a new Ninja Turtle has been chosen, but also we will know not to bomb Alcatraz. And at that moment, the jets, uh, the fighter pilot also, Jim Caviezel, that's right. That's right. Uh, Election lie spreader Jim Caviezel, mega piece of shit guy who played Jesus. He is in the uh, jet, and of course, because he's Jim Caviezel, he's a fucking idiot. Even though he sees the green smoke, he goes and he launches a bomb anyway. But don't worry, it only blows up a useless part of Alcatraz. Nicholas Cage gets blasted in the air, but I guess he lands on his feet like a cat. Meow. The good guys, uh, it sounds, it almost it sounds like they got a W. I think here, so. Dude. Yeah, you know, everybody's everybody on Alcatraz is saved. Everybody in San Francisco is saved. Yeah, so they're waiting to get picked up by the the feds for a job well done, and Mason's just like, "Well, I'm out," and uh, no one has <laughs> no one has anything to say about that because it's kind of the best idea. Uh, did Mason make it? And he's like, "Nah, Mason died, dude." And Mason's like, "Appreciate that, Charlotte." Hey, by the way, here's the exact location of uh, the secret files that the government wanted this whole time. I had it written down on a pretty sizable piece of paper. This whole time. <laughs> but did he just write it down? He gives it to him and he's like, go to this church. There's like a hollow leg in a pew and there's all the secrets. You know, Mason leaves. Sean Connery tells, excuse me, Nicolas Cage tells the feds like, oh yeah, Mason died. So Sean Connery's dead. So don't ever look for him again. Presume he's dead. Uh, I guess that wasn't enough because they had to have another scene where Nicolas Cage tells FBI Director Womack and FBI Muckety Muck, uh, I forget his name. But William Forsyth's character, 
Ed Braxton, excuse me, Ernest Paxton. Ed Braxton's pretty good. Is Sean Connery dead? And he's like, yeah, he's dead. By the way, the scene 100% filmed at a later date because everyone's hair yep. is different. Nicolas Cage's hair is shorter. John Spencer's hair is longer. William Forsyth has a different mustache. Is there a green skein behind him? There sure yeah, is. Yeah, for sure. And, <laughs> and it's really unnecessary. And then we get the final scene. Final of the scene of the movie. Uh, you got um, Goodspeed and his and his new bride. They're just married, and uh, Goodspeed is running out of the uh, the church in Kansas, and he's got the little canister of, uh, of microfilm with him. Uh, and he's, you know, they're driving away and he's looking at it and he's like, uh, Hey, do you really, do you want to know who really killed JFK? And, and that's the movie. I know it's supposed to be a funny line, but guys don't end a movie teasing us with a better movie. <laughs> Unless it was a sequel, Stanley Goodspeed will return in the rock Two book of national treasure secrets, you know, in that case, sign me up. So with that in mind, do you think this is maybe a prequel to the National Treasure series? He got a, he got the bloodlust uh, for treasures. You know, <laughs> treasures. Maybe it was because that was a Bruckheimer production. God damn it. Yeah, that's, you know, it doesn't feel like a Bruckheimer movie anymore because I guess he moved away from some Bay stuff. So David, let me see. I had three markout moments. You had zero. I had half. I'll, I'll count the, I'll count Rocket Man as half of one. Now it brings us to an important question, David. Is this someone's favorite movie? <laughs> I think so, uh, and I think it's someone uh, trapped in time, like uh, like they're trapped in amber. I-, I could see this being the favorite movie of somebody who like worked at Hollywood Video in the spring of '97 and just kind of developed a Stockholm bond with it, where they're just kind of like, eh, you know, it's not so bad. You know, the, the script's pretty good. You know, the performance is really good, and they just kind of convince themselves. But I could see that. I-, I think it's it's a good enough movie to be someone's favorite movie. I mean, yeah, I think when this movie came out, I remember seeing this movie and thinking like, whoa, that was nonstop action. For some reason, that runtime did not bother me when I was in my teens watching this thing. I honestly think like if if you saw this movie at the right time, it's your favorite movie. Totally. I get that. 100%. Okay, David. Punch-ups. How do you fix this? How do I fix this? What would you change? You know what? I I don't want to overhaul this movie. I think at at its heart, you know, or at its core, this is a pretty solid movie. Um, You know, we've talked uh, at length about the length of the movie. But I think the thing that sticks out with me, either you remove the laundry cart chase or you make it the rest of the movie. The entire third act could have just been this labyrinthine roller coaster ride through through Alcatraz. Fuck it, you know. Let's let's paint tunnels on the side of mountains. Let's just have them uh, going through Antarctica on this laundry cart. Have them going through uh, the t- space time continuum. Uh, enter a multiverse in these laundry carts. Like really, let's have some fun with these. I punch up this movie. Just Sean Connery's dialogue. You know, I would say, make this character full on foppish British dandy. You know what I mean? British dandy. Like his character in Indiana Jones Last mm-hmm. Crusade was so fun because he was like kind of a nerd playing against type. You know, stop this tough guy stuff. Make him really mad that someone like, uh, you know, gets a, a dirt on his ascot or something like that. Or he shoots a bad guy because he's like, oh, he, he doesn't put milk in his tea. Like, you know, just really play into it. Instead of talking about like fucking the prom queen, he should be like, oh, that was a first edition Oscar Wilde. How dare he? Because he does quote Oscar Wilde in this thing. When you made the mention of him throwing the knife and he said, you mustn't hesitate. There was a moment where I thought, you know who would have been great in this? Mm. Alan Partridge. Like, Steve Coogan playing Alan Partridge, playing this character, hitting those notes of, like, trying to be uh, a brute, but also trying to be a proper gentleman. That was a lot of fun in my head, that that version of the movie. Also, Ed Harris. You get what you pay for with that guy. You know, he he did a really solid job. 
Couldn't you maybe put someone more interesting in the role? You know what I mean? Angela Lansbury. Imagine if she was General Hummel. There you go. I think you got something there. Yeah. Or just somebody somebody really unhinged. Uh, I think like at the time, maybe like a carrot top, because you don't know what's happening uh, with that guy. Oh, there it is. There it is, David. You can imagine the, the trailer now. It's like, Connery Cage, carrot, the rock, or then, whatever. Uh, here comes Peter Travers saying, this movie has, give, give this movie all the props. <laughs> yeah, there it is. And they cut an hour out of it. Okay. David, you're the clerk at the Punch Mountain Video Store, an all-action movie video store. You know, you're. Is it, you know, we want to make sure our customers walk away with enough. You guys remember video stores? It's like a red box machine where people worked. You have three copies of this movie. Where? What subsections do you stock? Well, you thing? know me. One's going to go in the director's wall. Got to go in the I think they, you know, he probably does get a director's wall. More yes. so than Blomkamp? <laughs> Blomkamp, by the way, if that was a sex act, what would the it Blomkamp. be? Blomkamp. Uh, that would be um, filling a tent with cum. Oh, I actually think it's uh, you stuff your mouth full of as many marshmallows as you can. And oh, I like that, up. actually. I like that one a lot better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. got. Well, David, happy <laughs> birthday. <laughs> what a surprise twist. I blew David on air. That was a no one saw that coming. What are we going to do for the air. second episode? All right, two more <laughs> copies. All right, one's on the director's wall. One's going to go action. Probably like uh, 90s action. Like, I feel like that needs to be a specific category, too, because this is a very 90s action movie. And then I think oil change action, like the kind of action movie you would watch while getting an oil change. I think that those are going to be my, my three mm, categories for that. That is a good category, because, yes, absolutely. This is a movie that if it did, if it died, if it did... David, it's a movie if it did come on the TV. I would definitely watch some of it. You know For sure, I mean? yeah. Like this is a this is a perfect TNT movie. The basketball game ended. Uh, we're catching the last hour of this. It, it yeah, it's solid. It's a solid movie. Yeah, I think I would watch it until we see Nicolas Cage doing those the the diva arms with the green smoke. Then I knew it's okay to turn off because yep. everything's gonna be all right. Okay, David, our, our most important task here today. Uh, where does this fall on Punch Okay, um, you know, that's going to be out of our hands. That's going to be up for the gods to decide. But I think looking at what we've talked about, looking at, at everything in front of us, I'm going to put this square in the middle. I think it's going to be somewhere below the Matrix and somewhere above Chappie. David, we only have three movies right now, so there's not a lot of like nuance to the listings. It's just kind of one, two, three. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, my binoculars. I can clearly see Punch Mountain, and you're right, David. It's right now Punch Mountain, <laughs> Matrix, The Rock, Chappie. Okay. <laughs> what if we stopped one episode of the podcast? Ultimate Action Movie Rankings 3, it's these, and that's, that's them, I guess. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> David, you hear that? that sound? I do hear that sound. That's a horn calling us to action, David. Ah, uh, uh, yes, time to call to action. Yeah. On this podcast, look, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes. We also want to talk about real action heroes, and those are people that are taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. And this month, we're spotlighting the Innocence Project. Guided by science and grounded in anti-racism, the Innocence Project works to free the innocent, prevent wrongful convictions, and create fair, compassionate, and equitable systems of justice for everyone. After each episode this month, uh, Punch Mountain, that's us, David. Mm-hmm. We'll be making a small donation to the Innocence Project. And also for every review that we get on iTunes uh, or Spotify, we'll add some more platforms later. For every review we get, we'll add $1 to our donation, up to a certain amount, obviously, because we don't want... If there's any bots out there, they're hoping to bankrupt us. Sorry, bots. And hey, if it's a, a good review, we'll even read it on the air. For more information on the Innocence Project or to donate directly to them, visit innocenceproject.org. 
All right. So that's going to be uh, it for this week. That's going to be it for The Rock. Uh, let's wrap this up, folks. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. Uh, what are we doing next week, Mac? David, next week, all the way back from the year 2014, we're going to see a movie written and directed by Gareth Evans. It's The Raid 2. I'm excited. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.